Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 29. We left off in the middle of the the chapter. A couple of weeks ago. But when when they came up with that beautiful last song, um, it actually is the very first verse of our Bible study tonight. The background is, of course, um, Jesus being taken um, before Pilate examined. Barabbas has been freed. Um, Pilate, believing that Jesus indeed was innocent, had him scourged, uh, hoping that it would appease the people and not demand Barabbas instead of Jesus. It did not. It could not because of um, just in these verses from, I counted them up from verse 29 to 65, we're going to have eight Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. So I scratch my head when I, I think about people degrading Bible prophecy and say we should stay away from it. I don't know how you can stay away from it. <laughs> Just in a half, we got a half of a chapter here tonight, and we have eight Old Testament prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. And um, this first verse, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. So this is what we thought. They put the crown of thorns on the Lord as a sign of mockery. Um, they, they give him a robe, a scarlet robe. Uh, they give him a reed to put in his hand, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, on one of our studies, we actually went back to the book of Genesis. There were no thorns before the earth was cursed. We find that man, um, his punishment for going along with Eve um, and not listening to the Lord that his punishment would be he'd have to work the land and it would bring forth thorns, implying that there were not thorns before the curse came upon the earth. So literally, when Jesus is taking the sins of the world on on himself, this is a picture. This is not a coincidence that it's a crown of thorns. It's a literal picture of the curse being placed upon the Lord. When you look at verse 46... It's going to solicit from the Lord that time when the Lord had to forsake his only son. We'll we'll make our way up to that. That's one of the eight prophecies in our study tonight. But they they mocked him. Verse 30, they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his clothes on and led him away to be crucified. Now, again, in the other Gospels, it talks about... um, him being blindfolded when they were um, uh, hitting him and mocking him. And again, another Old Testament prophecy is from Isaiah 52, I think it's verse 14, tells us that Jesus was marred more than any man. And I, I believe that is very, very literal, that the Lord was, was brutalized in such a way that he was so weak um, and with the scourging, 40 minus 1, he was so weak that we read in 32, uh, they, as they came out, they found a man of serene, Simon by name. Him, they compelled to bear his cross. So evidently, 
because of the weakness, because of the amount of blood he had already lost. Again, we're not sure if it was just a cross beam or was it the entire cross itself. Um, We don't know. But he buckles under the pressure of the, the treatment. Remember, he's been up all night. He was arrested the night before. He had no sleep that entire night. And um, they bring him in verse 33, when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. And um, when we read this last time, I actually put a picture of Golgotha up there. It's where we get the name Calvary from. There's only one place um, outside the gates of Jerusalem that this could be. It's right next to, we're going to read about Joseph of Arimathea tonight. And I mentioned on Sunday that to get to Golgotha, you actually have to go through the garden tomb. And um, it's, it's beautifully kept up. It's a first century sepulcher. And I believe it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea because it was close by. So the place of the skull, I also believe... Uh, We talked about this with uh, Abraham and Isaac in Genesis, that the Lord told Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loves, and offer him there as an offering unto the Lord. Well, um, I was checking my weather. They have this new app called Weather Underground, and it tells you, I want to know how much rain we got last night. So this is one of the sites that does that. But it also, I just found out that um, the elevation in Kakana is 800 feet uh, in uh, uh, Nina Menashe area. But when you get to Kakana, where we live, it's at 700 feet. And as you go up to Wrightstown, you're at 600 feet. Remember, the Fox is one of the few rivers in the world that flow north. And the reason it flows north is we have that steady decline, and I'm not sure what it is by the time you get to to Green Bay. I know once you get to Green Bay, you can go anywhere in the world. And um, so I found out that uh, Kakana is at 700 feet. I found it interesting. Meters and feet are different. But where the Temple Mount is, where they tell you Abraham offered Isaac, is 742 meters above sea level. But when you get to Golgotha, which... um, where you see the skull, on top of that, there's, a, there's a, um, a cemetery. That is the highest point of Mount Moriah. Now, there's seven mountains in Jerusalem, and when you get to Golgotha, when you get to the top of that, you'd be at interesting number, 777 meters above sea level. So my persuasion is the prophecy from the Old Testament, Abraham knew what he was doing. All the promises that God made to Abraham were through Isaac. And he said, your descendants are going to be through Isaac, and they'll be as the stars in the heaven. There will be so many. And I believe uh, when he prophesied, he knew what he was doing. Um, He tells us when he gets through and the angel interrupts him from killing his son, um, they found the ram in a thicket and they offered that instead. And then he prophesies. He says, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And that's when another father, I think in exactly the same place, would allow his son 
to go through with what Abraham didn't. I don't believe it was on uh, Temple Mount. Uh, you can disagree with me if you want to. You're wrong, but you can disagree with me if you want to. <laughs> now, it's one of those things that I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about, but I hold my convictions because of that prophecy that Abraham said it will be seen in the Mount of the Lord. And I believe it was at the same place. It's the place of the skull. That's where we get the word Calvary from. Um, Verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. That's Psalm 69, verse 21. That would be our second prophecy uh, here. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Again, Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. It also goes on to say in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, that they pierce my hands and my feet. Well, this was 300 years before the Romans came up with crucifixion. So capital form of execution, 1000 BC, was stoning. Matter of fact, even in Jesus' time, um, when they caught the woman in the act of adultery, they brought her out, threw her down before the Lord, and says, the law says, stoner. So even during the, the Lord's time, they were holding to the law. The law says, stoner, but what do you say? My point is that um, when David penned Psalm 22 and Isaiah penned um, um, Isaiah 53, um, the very fact that they would say his hands and his feet were, were pierced was 300 years before it was even invented by, by the cruelty of the Romans. It was done, it was a horrible, horrible death that can't be described. Um, that was meant to solicit fear, and they would do it by the main drag, you know, College Avenue. They would pick the busiest place they could find so that anybody walking by could not only see the agony, but they could read the indictment, in this case, Jesus, the King of the Jews, written in three different languages. And um, so they crucified him, um, Verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Oh, there's what I missed. Make it nine. That's Psalm 22, verse 17, being fulfilled. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, we're introduced um, to these two men that were crucified with him. One on the right and the other left. We know that Jesus would have been in the middle. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. I have that as Psalm 22, verse 7, another prophecy. And saying, you who destroyed the temple and, and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. 
That's Psalm 22, verse 8, marked on another prophecy fulfilled right there. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, up to this point, both of them um, are mocking uh, the Lord. But on Sunday, we got into talking a little bit about the thief on the cross, and something happened. During this time, Jesus was on the cross from nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. From noon till three, the sky turned uh, black. And somewhere during this period of time, um, there was a change of heart in one of the thieves as he believed that really this was the son of God. We're going to be starting Mark. And um, Mark's reoccurring phrase for Jesus is the son of God. We might get to an introduction of Mark tonight, uh, but if we get that far, it'll only be an introduction. But at this point, they're both reviling him and um, saying the same thing. But one of them asks the Lord, says, Lord, would you enter your kingdom? Would you remember me? And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because I'm going to bring that up and want to get to verse 51. And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling out for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. This is Psalm 69, verse 21, another prophecy being fulfilled. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up the spirit. Now, John's gospel, um, and when do a combination of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we find out that Jesus spoke seven times uh, from the cross. Matthew only mentions a couple times. The first one my, is not, um, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't the first thing Jesus said from the cross. The first thing the Lord said from the cross is, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. That was the first thing. This isn't said till um, later on, I think it's five or six, if I, if I remember right. And... Um, the last thing he said, adding on to verse 50, yielding up, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That would have been the seventh. The sixth would have been, it is finished. The Greek word there is to tell us that. In other words, the work is over. And um, everything that Jesus came to do at this point has now been accomplished. When he would first, when we start um, Mark, Mark's not going to have a genealogy. He's not going to talk about the birth of Jesus. He's going to go right into John the Baptist. That's how Mark starts. And, of course, with John, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, six, six months apart. And, again, some of my favorite words in the Bible, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Mark is going to start out that way, And now, three years later, everything that Jesus 
was sent to this world to accomplish has now been accomplished. He dismisses his own spirit. I was reading a little bit in the back about um, um, my certainty to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I was just doing some cross-checking while I was sitting back there. And one of them was from Peter. Um, or Paul, I should say. Or was it Peter, Paul, and Mary? No, it was Paul. It was Paul, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Sorry, 60 joke there. And Paul's talking about, you know, I'd rather be with the Lord right now. It's better to be with the Lord, but it's more needful for me to be with you. That's why I'm still here. But he said it's better to depart and to be with the Lord. Evidently, Paul believed, like he wrote to the Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Some people believe in soul sleep. Some people believe that um, there won't be a resurrection till uh, the rapture of the church. I just can't find a, a steady argument for it. Should I go there now? Yeah, let's go there now. Go to another thing I did in the back room before I came out was I went to Daniel chapter 12. When you read Daniel, you have, what's a good word? Small bits of information about the last days. Um, We have examples of of the Antichrist. We have a prototype of the Antichrist named Antioch Epiphanes in one chapter, and then we have one chapter that's just about the Antichrist that will come. When you get to chapter 12, um, it's not necessarily in a chronological order. It says at the Uh, Chapter 12, verse 1, at that time Michael will stand up, that great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there will be a time of trouble such as never since there was a nation. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 24. When the great tribulation comes, and in the middle of the great tribulation, it says Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels, and there was found no more space for Lucifer, and he was cast to the earth, knowing he has but a short time. And that short time is three and a half years. So this verse right here is a tribulation verse. And then it says, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Now I'm gonna show you where I think that takes place, but here... Again, uh, it's tying a lot of things together where you need the New Testament and the book of Revelation to bring clarity and understanding to this verse two right here because it just gives us one paragraph, but there's so much more to it. Some to everlasting life. Some will awake uh, from the earth. Some to everlasting life. Some to everlasting shame and contempt. Well, what they don't explain to you here, uh, Jesus coming, that after, well, now we go back and let's, let's piece it together. Go back to Matthew 27 and now 51. 51 through 53 are events that happened as soon as Jesus died. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split. So now, um, of course, that veil of separation. Only the high priest could go into that room and only once a year on Yom Kippur. 
and he better made sure that he confessed all of his sins and had his own atonement together or he would not come out. That's why they tied a rope around his leg in case uh, he didn't (laughs) confess all of his sins. It was pure in the eyes of the Lord. And, um, but now that veil is completely gone. So that means anybody who believes the gospel. Um, Job cried out, oh, I wish I was a mediator. Somebody who could put his hand on God and put his hand on me and bring us together. Well, that's what Jesus did. He's a mediator of a new covenant. And instead of going through a high priest after the order of Levi, and we read it on Sunday in Psalm 110. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek had no genealogy. He had no beginning and had no end. It has to be a Christophanes, an Old Testament appearance of Christ because nobody else is eternal. And so he, he continually lives to make intercession for you and I. He sat down at the right hand of God when he ascended into heaven. And then it says, and this verse is just one of the most mind-boggling verses to me in the Bible. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they came out of their graves. And then it's very important that we read the next part of this, where it says, and uh, after his resurrection... In other words, Jesus was the first person to die and literally come back with a resurrected body. Nobody has ever done that before. Now, I'm not going to get into all of Sunday's message, what we went through. But uh, remember, I took you to Ephesians, and I said before he ascended, he descended. Remember I quoted Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the fish, so the Son of Man has to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isaiah 61 tells us, uh, well, in Ephesians, it said he led captivity captive. And I said, remember that term, captivity is being held captive. And um, then we went to Hebrews chapter 11. And we got as far as Abraham and Sarah, and it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, they were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. So they died. They're in a place of comfort when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. He wasn't talking about heaven because it was today. And we know that he he had to be in the heart of the earth for three days. So the question arises, what was he doing down there? We went to Luke chapter 16. We went through the parable It's not a parable. I bite my tongue. Um, Parables do not have proper names in them. This one does, by a man named Lazarus. Lazarus went to a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom. That's paradise. The rich man died and went to hell, but he was still very much alive. And he was in torment, so much so that he asked Abraham to come and send Lazarus over and cool his tongue because of his torment. And for the first time in this man's existence, his whole life, the reality of his certainty in this place is sealed. Abraham said, sorry, we can't go over there. You can't come over here. I believe this verse right here, verse 52, when it says the graves were opened after Jesus arose from the dead. Well, what was he doing for three days? I believe he was 
setting the captives free. Those who died in faith were waiting for this moment to come. And my question, um, I think that gives it more credibility that they went to heaven from here, is that um, would they go back to Abraham's bosom and then just hang out there until the resurrection at the last day? I think not. I think the rich man, yes, definitely. Because Revelation 20 tells us that uh, death and hell gave up the dead. But they're not dead. The rich man is still there as I speak. And he'll be there until um, the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. It says the sea gave up the dead and death and hell. And that includes the rich man. And everybody that stands before that judgment, um, their names are not written in the book of life, will spend eternity in a place called hell. Not prepared for man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this, this verse here um, is just an amazing, astounding verse to me. It makes no sense to me to have them raised from the dead, go and visit, it says many, I don't know how many many are, but many. I don't believe that once they were resurrected that they went back down. And I believe what, like now that Jesus is risen from the dead, like Paul says, well, I'd rather be absent from this body, be present with the Lord. I'd rather, uh, it's, that's my desire is to be with the Lord, but it's, it's needful for me to, to be here until the Lord takes me home. So let's go on from there. When John Wayne saw those who were with him guarding Jesus, that's who played the centurion in Jesus of Nazareth, in case you didn't catch that one. Um, that was his only line. Here's John Wayne, Duke. He had, he had a one-liner. His one-liner in the movie was, truly, this was the son of God. That was his whole, his whole line. But I think he wanted to be in the movie. Now when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the son of God. John Wayne said one day, I want that line. I want to be able to say that. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, the mother of the Zebedee sons. So that would have been James and John. So from verse 29 to 56, we have the crucifixion and uh, a mention going ahead after Jesus, after the three days. And now, um, in verse 57, we're introduced to uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. I believe both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were followers of the Lord. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new 
tomb. Now we know that he was a wealthy individual and um, the tomb next to Golgotha, uh, archaeologists declare it to be a first century tomb of a wealthy individual because of the size of um, uh, the wine press that they have there. And then they have a cavern that you can look down into. Oh, it's at least, if not taller, from the, the top of the ceiling all the way to the bottom and almost as big as, we can sit 700 people here at Calvary. Even more if we add the, uh, the seats in the back. That's how large his cistern was hewed out to be, just for him to hold his water. He was a very wealthy individual who had this garden. And with it was uh, the wine press is still there to, to this day. The stone um, uh, was there. It's run by the Brits. Um, we have to let go of our guide he comes along with us, but he doesn't do any of the guiding. It's, it, it was purchased by the Brits around the turn of the century. I don't know when. And um, we always meet a delightful chap with a delightful British accent who gives us the certainty of why he believes that not only is Golgotha where Jesus was crucified, but that the, the garden is right there And the expense that went into maintaining this um, is very, very strong evidence. Uh, Even the way the the tomb is there. It's a highlight. I mean, where we leave off. Oh, Joseph of Arimathea. And I believe that is um, actually the tomb that Jesus was in. This man went to, oh, we read that. uh, Verse 59 and when Joseph had taken the body, wrapped him in a clean linen, and laid him in a new tomb which had been hewn out of rock, which this one is, just like um, his uh, cistern, and he rolled a large stone against the, mount, the, the door of the tomb and then departed. That's Isaiah 53, verse 9, as another fulfilled uh, prophecy. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb on the next day which followed the day of preparation the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying sir we remember when he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days I will arise therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead so the last deception will be worse than the first Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealed the stone, setting the guard. So chapter 27 is the crucifixion and uh, the burial of the Lord. And as we get to uh, chapter 28, the last chapter in Matthew's gospel, what I did on Sunday is put in a chronological order because Matthew does not. You have to have a harmony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to uh, see the 13 um, different appearances of Jesus after he arose from the dead. 
Now, the first one actually was, um, this one, it's important that we um, distinguished between dark and the breaking of dawn. So after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and another Mary came to see the tomb. Now, when, I'm not going to have you turn to John 20, but this is what we did on Sunday. Uh, the next two appearances, it says Mary came when it was still dark. So Mary was there before this event because this is at dawn. And we read in, um, that Mary goes and tells John and Peter, if you're taking notes, that's um, John 20, verses 1 through 10. They run. Uh, remember I made a point of John pointing out he could run faster than Peter. He got there first. And so <clears throat> then in verses 11 through 18, um, he appears to Mary. And that's 11 through 18. Here, we, we read, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, <coughs> excuse me, and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. That to me is just cool. An angel comes down, rolls it back, and then just sort of sits up there on top of it, looking down. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards <clears throat> shook for fear of him, and they became like dead men. They saw this. And we're going to read when we get to verse 11 that they went and told everything that they saw. We're going to see that they got bought off. And, but the guards shook for fear, became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come and see the place where they, uh, the Lord lay. And again, it's, it's uh, mind-boggling to actually walk into this tomb. There would have been a, a chamber separated by some steel bars. And um, because it was a rich man's tomb, it actually had an area just for people to go in. And there's actually two places to put two bodies down. And... Um, um, going in there and just pondering the place. or just, It's like being at Calvary, just pondering what happened at this spot is the most <clears throat> incredible, I think, uh, quoting, I said Walter Martin, was really Henry Morris I quoted on Sunday, um, the most remarkable event since the creation is right here. And then to be able to go in and look at that, sort of, leaves you not with, how do you put that in words? You just can't put that into words. Then verse seven, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. Well, there was a whole lot more that happened before he ends up in in Galilee. This happened in the morning. First, before it was dark, then at dawn, and then on Sunday, um, I mentioned in Mark 16 and also in Luke, in the afternoon, he appears to Cleopas and his buddy on the road to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And 
the reason that was an important verse to be, there's only two verses in Mark's account of this event. But what it says that he appeared to, to Cleopas and his friend in another form. So the Lord was purposely changing his identity to Cleopas. They knew him. They were followers of him. But they were giving up, going home. But the Lord made himself known, it says in Luke, at the breaking of bread. He would have went like this. And then it says he was known to them, and then he just disappears. And that's the afternoon. Then in the evening... We go back to John's gospel, and uh, that's where Thomas is not there. And um, he appears to the disciples. They believe on him. Thomas shows up. The Lord's alive. We've seen him. Thomas won't buy it. He says, I don't believe it, not unless I can put my hands in his holes and my hand in his side. I won't buy it. Eight days later, the Lord pops in again. The doors are shut. He just appears in front of him, says, peace be to you. And when he says that, he says, Thomas, let's talk. I want you to, um, I want you to take your hand here and put it in the holes. And I want you to take this hand and put it in my side. Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas gets down and he worships the Lord and says, my Lord, my God. And the Lord says, Thomas, because you've seen, you believe, And then he says, blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. That's for you. That's for me. I believe because of the scriptures, because of being born again, knowing the voice of the Lord, never seen him. But like it says um, um, in the other epistles, whom not seeing him yet loving him, we look forward, forward to that day. So we made it um, uh, back to verse where he says he's going into the Galilee. That doesn't happen until chapter 21. Well, chapter 20 of John happens in Jerusalem, but chapter 21 happens in the Galilee. And remember when we went there, the guys were fishing, and it tells us how many were there? It says there were seven. My question is, were the other four? And then later, he appears to the 11 in the Galilee on a mountain that he told them to go and meet him at. So we have two more appearances, one down by the shore with seven, and then one up on a mountain where there was 11. So those um, would, have been, would, would not have been the final appearance because now we're coming back to Jerusalem um, verse 9 and as they went to tell his disciples behold Jesus met them saying rejoice and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him and then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my disciples to go to Galilee and there they will see me and while they were going behold some of the guards came into the city now these are the same guards that are totally freaked out by the angel with great fear, and um, reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So they had to tell the chief priests, we saw an angel. 
scared us to death. We played dead. We played possum. And they told him that. And you would think, you know, if that was being told to you, being a Roman soldier, um, if your prisoner got away on your watch and you said you went to sleep, you're a dead man. Roman, Roman law, Roman justice. And when they had assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They bought them off, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him while you were asleep. Um, no Roman would ever tell another Roman to do that. Um, but here they're telling, or I should say that the high priest is saying that as they're buying off these guys. Um, no Roman guard would ever admit to that because it was a death threat on him. And if this comes to the governor's ears, in other words, if Pilate hears about it, don't worry about it, we'll appease him, we'll make you secure. We know about the rule about falling asleep. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain. So John tells us that before the, the mountain, there was a fishing incident with the seven. Matthew doesn't allude to that, which Jesus had appointed to them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but then some doubted. Question, if they're worshiping him, why are they doubting? I personally believe the Lord is changing his form. Why? I don't know. Testing them. He said he was going to do this. They said they knew it was the Lord. They see the marks in the hand. or did he, It clearly says with everything that they've been going through that here some still doubted. I was listening to Jan Markell today as we finish up this chapter. And um, no, actually... I wasn't listening to her, I was reading her article. And basically, she says most of her conversations today are with people saying, why can't I find a good church? And she goes on to say there are very few churches that will teach through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And then she said, uh, and there are very few of them that'll put on a prophecy conference. And I thought, ooh, I wonder if she's thinking of us. Because <laughs> that's coming up right around the corner. But then she went on in her frustration. It was a very lengthy article. And her frustration talking about Rick Warren. And it, the three or four things he said are the most important thing for his church to know. And preaching and teaching is not at the top of the list. Matter of fact, it's not even the main thing that he said. He said the main thing and this is supposed to be America's quote-unquote pastor, along with Bill Hybels. Both, both of them had the same mentor, a man who is not saved named Peter Drucker, who um, he'll teach you how to be outwardly successful, but not really spiritually successful. Bill Hybels admitted as much about seven or eight years ago when they did a personal study on the growth in their own church. There was no spiritual growth. And um, they forgot about that, I think, rather quickly. But anyway, when I was curious, I thought, well, what is Rick Warren's most important thing that you can tell the people in the church? And this is what she put in her article. She said, um, 
that you need to find out what the vision of that particular church is. And um, uh, she was sarcastic, and rightly so, I think at this point. At least I sense some sarcasm, and I agree with her sarcasm. She simply said, vision of the church? Are you kidding? Here's the vision of the church. This is what we're about to read. This is your vision. This is the Bible's vision. We don't need to find and look for what vision do we have. The vision is laid out and was given by Jesus himself in the last verses that we'll read tonight. It's called the Great Suggestion. And you laugh appropriately so. No, this is the vision of the church. It's the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For those who have a trouble with the Trinity, there it is right there. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Again, there's only one way you can do that. And that's by teaching through the entire Bible. Jesus said the volume of the book is about me. And you can start in Genesis 1.1 and Jesus is there. In the beginning, Elohim. El is singular for God. Elohim is plural. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 26 says, let us make man in our image. Plurality. With the, the spirit of God brooded over the water. You have the father and son involved with creation. Making man in his image. And his spirit. All three of them are there in Genesis chapter 1. And all the way through the rest of the Bible. And so the volume of the book is all about Jesus. And the only way that you can teach them to observe all things is by doing a systematic study from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Oh yeah, but Numbers is kind of boring. No, it's not. You get to um, Numbers and Deuteronomy and you get to the, the whole story of Moses lifting up the serpent and all that took place in that, how would you know about it unless you studied the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers? You wouldn't. Teaching them. Teaching uh, my people perish um, for lack of knowledge of my word. Mm, I don't know if I should. <laughs> Without mentioning cities or names, I was invited by a Calvary Chapel pastor to check out a church that they're possibly looking at. I'm not at liberty to say which Calvary or where it is, but the point is this is what I want to make. It's a denominational church, seating capacity well over 300, but they only have 20 people showing up on a Sunday morning. And they simply want out. They just don't want to do it anymore. And uh, that's a result of people getting away from teaching and preaching. By the way, this is a very liberal, I'll say that much, the most liberal of this denomination. And simply people aren't coming anymore. And they want out. And um, so we're praying for them. We got it on our prayer list that God gives this pastor wisdom. It'd be a big, big step for him. And I, my prayer for him is that he gets to see the hand of the Lord like we got to see the hand of the Lord in the purchase of our building. When we first came here and saw this, you guys know it was a disco, didn't have any windows, and um, 
This is the story I told this pastor. I said, a decision is big. You really want to see the hand of the Lord in it. You want to feel confident that, um, that God's in it. And then he'll take care of it. God's not, money's not a problem for God. Well, when we got this place, I just told him this story just to encourage him. And I'll, I'll close up with it tonight. Um, we had a building fund. We were moving out of a little white church. And we had $16,000 in our building fund account. And um, the owner of the building uh, wanted $80,000 as a down payment. And um, back then, he wanted a quarter of a million, I think, for, for what, what was here, which was basically um, a disco that he couldn't get a liquor license for or he lost it, I can't remember. So I told him, I said, look, um, I'd like to have a meeting with you and um, uh, can we arrange that? He said, sure, come on out. And I said, I like this building. I just like it. I, I think it's got a lot of potential. But there's no way that we can work with you with $80,000. Work out something with this. Let's talk this out. Now let's come up with some sort of land contract over two or three years. And um, we'll fix the place up. It'll be in our land contract. You've got nothing, nothing to lose, but you got to give me your bottom dollar, what you can come up with, um, or we can't talk. And I picked up the phone, called his bank, and he was on the, on the phone for about five minutes. He hung up the phone, looked at me and one of my board members at the time, and says, if you guys can come up with $16,000, I'll work with you. That's just one of two divine, three divine appointments, two the dollars, not a penny more. So we bought it. But then we didn't have any money to do anything else because we had spent it all. But do you know that the Lord provided every step of the way? Every step of the way. We had an architect, and this is the other story I told him. And I'll tell it too because I still got a minute left. <laughs> we had an architect, his name is Chaz. He actually drew architecturally what I wanted it to look like. And I wanted it to be in a circle. Before we put on this addition from that post on here, the church ended right there. So we put a wall right there and we put the building project here so we could still have services. Ed, we were sitting on, 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 on back there. Um, that was the sanctuary. But really it's where the stage would have been. And we would have seats like right up to here. And um, he had the number of pews all written out. We needed 84 of them. But to get them to go in a circle, they'd have to be of different lengths, 12-footers and 5-footers. So I went online, $50,000, just like that. Well, that wasn't going to happen. So somebody, actually it was Mike Yonke, was looking at the bargain bulletin. And he says, you know, there's a, there's a church you could in Kakana, selling pews. I said, you gotta be kidding. So I went and I looked into their, their gymnasium and here's all these pews and I looked at them and they're like 20 bucks a piece or something. I said, I'll take them all. And they said, you can't have them. Why not? Well, you know how people are about their pews. They get sentimentally attached to them. And they, they were gonna take their pew home with them. That was their pew. You know what that pew is, that's your pew. That's, that's where Jerry and Carol sit. No better better sit there or you guys are in trouble. 
well, okay, I'll take whatever is left. And they had 12-footers and 5-footers. Some of the 5-footers are still way back in that corner back there. That's what the 5-footers look like. And we got two of the 12-footers on the far end of the, that are left over from that building project. Well, when it was all said and done, we had 84 pews. Not 85, not 83. We had 84. And they fit perfectly to it. And that was the kind of signs that the Lord gave us that we knew that the Lord had given us this building. There's other reasons. There's Indian missionaries that had to leave India in, um, in, in 49. He lived on the corner. They used to come and walk around this building and pray for it and say, Lord, we pray that you'd use this building for your glory instead of a bar. And they, they would do this on a regular basis. I became friends with them after we, because I was going to India on a, on, a, on a yearly basis for many, many years, and that's where they were from. So we would sit down and talk about Indian stories. So I, to encourage this, this Calvary pastor, I told him, you've got a big decision to make. Just make sure that the Lord is in it. Ask him to, to give you, um, like the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. And so we wanted to be sure, but the Lord made it so obvious to us. That was 35, something like that, years ago, 37 plus. And teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the age. We just finished Matthew, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for being able to see your hand over the years. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that um, as we go out tonight, we would just uh, um, go out with the glorious hope, knowing that to be absent from this body is to be present with you. Thank you for the hope of the kingdom. We thank you for the resurrection and the hope that it brings to us. I pray for the Prophecy Conference and those, again, that are coming. Lord, please bless it and let your Holy Spirit um, just be upon um, those that are taking it in and those that are speaking. In Jesus' name, amen.